Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in those beautiful anthems of praise and in musical version of the Lord's Prayer. What a blessing. I also wanted to take a moment just to thank all of the volunteers uh, that served in uh, VBS this week. It was such an incredible time. It's one of my favorite weeks of the year just to see the church just filled with children who are uh, just being shown so much love and having so much fun and hearing the good news of the gospel, learning Bible verses. What a blessing. We had about 200 kids each day, just an incredible blessing from the Lord. So thank you to each and every one of you who who helped prepare, who volunteered, uh, who were part of this wonderful ministry to not only the precious children of our own church, but children from the community and even from other local churches. So thank you, volunteers. Well, as part of our mini-series entitled, What to Do About Doubt, we're studying three strategies which God sovereignly uses to draw a lost sinner to saving faith. We're looking at these three strategies, the Lord's strategy to convince people by creation, consciousness, and credibility, to convict them of sin by the commandments, the conscience, and catastrophes, and to call people to the cross, to the church, and to the Great Commission. Now, last week, we focused on the first of those three strategies, but we didn't quite finish. And so today, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. So I want to just briefly review what we covered last week so that we can pick up where we left off. The first thing strategy we were looking at is that strategy to convince, to convince people by creation, by consciousness, and by credibility. And we saw last week that the Greek word patho, translated to convince or to persuade, is one of the most commonly used terms to describe our mission, our evangelistic mission. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, it says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. Our mission, our role is to go out and to convince people to turn from sin and to follow Christ as Savior. We saw that the Lord has given us three powerful tools to use in our efforts to persuade and to convince people. They are the external evidence of creation, the internal evidence of consciousness, and then the cumulative evidence of credibility. So as we looked at the external evidence of creation, we saw that there are three qualities of creation that provide compelling evidence of its creator. We talked about creation's design, its delight, and its doxology. And these three qualities of creation provide such compelling external evidence of the creator that the Bible asserts in Romans 1.20 that people have no excuse if they reject the testimony of creation. Romans 1.20 says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now, last week, we also looked at the second type of evidence which God uses to sovereignly draw sinners to himself. He not only uses the external evidence of creation, he also uses the internal evidence of consciousness, the internal evidence of consciousness. Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in his own image and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, giving man a soul. And because we have a soul, we have a unique type of consciousness that other created beings do not have. And there are three components of human consciousness that God uses to draw us to himself. They are our sense of eternity, our experience of emptiness when sin separates us from God, and our inclination to exaltation. We long to worship our creator. We were made to worship. And we ended last week then by noting that God has not only provided the external evidence of creation and the internal evidence of consciousness, he has also graciously provided us with the cumulative evidence of credibility, the cumulative evidence of credibility. 
Paul tells King Agrippa in Acts 26, 26, that he's confident that King Agrippa knows about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He says, because this has not been done in a corner. In other words, these things all took place publicly. And last week we pointed out that the miracles of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension were all seen by large numbers of credible eyewitnesses. And we also talked last week about the incredible amount of both internal and external evidence of the veracity and the historicity of the Bible, of Holy Scripture. From the undeniable fulfillment of prophecy to the clear characteristics of eyewitness testimony, to the incredible consistency and unity of 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years that all have the same message, we see that the Bible contains compelling and self-attesting internal evidence that it is indeed the Word of God. This is why Charles Spurgeon said the best way to defend the Bible is simply by sharing its content. He said that the Bible is like a tiger. How do you defend a tiger? Let him out of the cage and he'll defend himself. The best way to convince someone that scripture is the word of God is to share it with them, is to share it with them. It is the word of the Lord, and his word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so when you're seeking to defend the Bible, don't rely merely on external evidences. Rely on the internal testimony of Scripture itself. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And the Scripture says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so ultimately, our mission is very simple. We open the Scriptures, and we share God's word with people, and his word goes forth and accomplishes the purpose for which he sends it. But not only does Scripture have incredible internal and self-attesting evidence, there is also a ton of external evidence for the veracity and historicity of Scripture. We have thousands of manuscripts which show how faithfully the original text has been preserved. We have an astounding amount of scientific and historical and archaeological evidence and All of that together creates a mountain of compelling external evidence of the historicity and veracity of Scripture. I want to give you just one example from just this last week. Just this week, yet another in an incredibly long line of pieces of evidence has emerged, archaeological evidence, found by the Institute of Archaeology of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, working in partnership with a university from Sydney, Australia. This discovery was verified by the Israel Antiquities Authority, and it is an inscription on a piece of pottery which dates to the time of the judges over 3,000 years ago. This inscription has the name Jerubal on it. What's interesting is this is not a normal name. It's not a common name. But it is something that's mentioned in Judges 6.32. Judges 6.32 says that Gideon's father, after he tore down the altar of Baal, gave him an extremely unique nickname, Jerubal. And this discovery from just this week mentions Gideon's unique nickname exactly as Judges 6.32 records. So this shows the incredible historical accuracy of even the details of Scripture, even when Judges 6.32 appears to just in passing mention Gideon's nickname given to him by his father, we find archaeological evidence confirming even this detail. There is truly a massive amount of both internal and external evidence for the veracity, historicity, and faithful preservation of the Bible. So this morning, I want to pick up at this point, which is where we left off last week, and I want to talk to you about three types or three categories of credible evidence which the Bible says should convince even the most hardened skeptic. And the first is the credibility of Christian logic, the credibility of Christian logic. When Christ frees a person 
from spiritual death. When Christ frees them from the way which sin twists human reason. And when Christ frees them from the blinding of the mind of Satan, that person, once freed, begins to reason rightly. And sound reasoning inexorably leads to its source. And the source of sound reasoning is the God of truth. God is a rational God who made man in his image and imparted to us our rationality. Our reason inexorably points to the God of reason, the God of truth, our creator. Why then does not everyone recognize this? Well, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6 explains The apostle writes, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is the truth claim of scripture, that the truth manifests itself and commends itself to every person's conscience. When they hear the truth, there's something inside that causes them to say, this is the truth. Why then do they not accept it? Well, the apostle goes on to explain in verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, he's speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul is saying, the light shines and it is bright. So why do the unbelieving not see it? It is because Satan has blinded their minds. The truth of the gospel is so compelling. The light of truth shines so brightly that it commends itself to every person's conscience in the sight of God. In fact, it's only because God is a rational God of truth that true logic and true reason is even possible So the truth commends itself to those made in God's image, to every person. I want you to note that an atheistic worldview doesn't have a foundation in sound reason. The atheist worldview posits an accidental universe, an accidental universe created by pure chance, But an accidental universe created by pure chance would be characterized by randomness, not by universal law. Atheists generally tend to defend their unbelief by raising one of three types of objections, by raising a logical objection, a moral objection, or a scientific objection. So for example, they may say, well, the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't make sense to me. That's a logical objection. Or they may say, well, I've known Christians and they were such hypocrites or Christians have done terrible things. That is a moral objection. Or they may say, well, I think Darwinian evolution is how we came about. That's a scientific objection. And of course, there are answers for each of these specific objections. But what I want to talk to you tonight is about the underlying issue the issue underneath all of those objections. I want you to notice that in an atheistic worldview, there is no foundation for any of those three types of objections. Logical, to make a logical objection, you must believe in the existence of universal laws of logic. To make a moral objection, you must believe in the existence of universal laws of morality, and to make a scientific objection, you need to believe in the existence of universal laws of nature. So, for example, when an atheist says to me, well, you know, Christians are hypocrites or they've done evil things, I just ask a simple question. In an atheistic worldview, why is hypocrisy wrong? Why is it bad? 
If you believe in survival of the fittest, then hypocrisy should be a great thing because that's how I trick people to get what I want. Survival of the fittest, baby. But the the atheist, the unbeliever, he doesn't doubt that hypocrisy is bad. He knows it's bad. He is presupposing a moral law that his own worldview can't explain. All logical, moral, and scientific objections must presuppose the existence and validity and applicability of universal laws of logic, of morality, and of nature. In an atheistic worldview, there's absolutely no legitimate basis to believe there even are universal laws of nature, logic, and morality. If random, chaotic chance accidentally created everything, then all that exists should display randomness and chaos. So a good question to ask an atheist is, how can you rationally explain the existence of universal laws of logic, universal laws of morality, and universal laws of nature while denying the one who created those universal laws. You know, as I've asked that question to many atheists over the years, the top answer I get is, well, I don't know, but it just is. Well, well, you're right, it just is. There are universal laws of logic of nature and morality. That's what even makes our discussion possible. If there were no laws of logic, we, I, you know, you could have you know, two babies, gobbly gobbly gook and gobbly gobbly gook and you know, call it you know, advanced reasoning. <laughs> the conversation itself is evidence that both of us believe in universal laws of logic. We both believe that an internal contradiction is a counter evidence and that consistency and coherence is an evidence, a positive evidence. Why is that? Why are contradictions bad? Why is hypocrisy bad? Why doesn't gravity make things fall up one moment and fall down the next? I once spoke to, uh, sat next to and had a very lengthy conversation with a very high-ranking Russian rocket scientist. He was working on the International Space Station flying from Moscow to New York. And he was a lifelong atheist grew up in the Soviet Union, was educated in all of the top atheistic arguments. And I asked him, he raised each of these types of objections, and I just asked him, I said, on what basis can you make a logical objection? On what basis can you make a moral objection? On what basis can you make a scientific objection if you have no basis to believe in universal law? He said, I can't answer that, and that question has been bothering me for decades. You see, atheism must presuppose theistic ideas in order to attack theism. They have to stand on our worldview in order to attack our worldview. Right? It's a little bit uh, the old illustration of like a child who has to climb up on his father's lap to slap his father in the face. They have to climb onto the theistic worldview in order to make objections against the theistic worldview. Atheism must presuppose theistic ideas to attack theism and is therefore internally incoherent and self-defeating. Only the Christian worldview accounts for the clear existence of universal laws of nature, of logic, and of morality. If you would like to see a great example of this argument being used in a debate, you can search on YouTube for the, what, quote, the great debate between the late Christian apologist Dr. Greg Bonson and an atheist professor named Dr. Gordon Stein. Here's the question, though. If sound reasoning points inexorably to God, why doesn't everyone believe? You know, unbelievers have, first of all, a moral motivation and an intellectual justification. It starts with the moral motivation. John Piper's son has sadly apostatized from the Christian faith and kind of gained a huge following on TikTok or the different social media platforms, just kind of mocking Christianity. You know what he said about how and when he became an atheist? He said, he said if I'm being honest, I became an atheist because I wanted to drink gallons of liquor and fornicate. 
there's a moral motivation that needs an intellectual justification. And a moral motivation will find a intellectual justification. An immoral desire will find its reasons. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of truth. It's not that the light isn't there. It's all around them. It's even in them. God has made it evident to them. The light is there. The light shining all around them. The light is bright, but they can't see it. It's radio waves with no antenna, no receiver. Why can't they see the evidence? Why can't they see the external evidence of creation, the internal evidence of conscience, and the cumulative, multidiscipline evidence for the veracity of the Christian faith? Why can't they see it? Well, according to Ephesians 2 1, they're dead in sin. According to Romans 1 28, they've been given over to a depraved mind. According to 1 Corinthians 1 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Light is there, person is blind. Radio waves are going out, no antenna to receive it. In John 8.43-44, through 44, Jesus said that unbelievers cannot understand his words. Why? He said something that's hard. He said, you cannot understand my words because you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Right? See, it's a moral problem that has created lies to create an intellectual justification. Those verses that I just mentioned and many, many more in scripture describe what theologians call the noetic effects of sin from the Greek word for the mind the effects of sin on the mind. Because of sin, we literally can't think straight. Sin is inherently irrational. We see people, right? It's like, you know, they, they destroy their lives and you're like, why would you do that? It doesn't make sense and, and it doesn't. Sin is inherently irrational and sin twists human reason. In Romans chapter 1, it says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Listen, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, it's the moral motivation. They want to do immoral things and so they suppress the truth. It says that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. It's not a lack of evidence. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. They try to make excuses, but they don't have a legitimate one. Well, what happened? Verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It says in verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness. Sin Selfishness and Satan have twisted and blinded the minds of unbelievers. And that is why we must pray for God to open their eyes. They need spiritual surgery. We need to pray for God to open their eyes so that they will finally be able to see the bright light which has always been all around them and that now they will have, by the grace of God, sanctified logic where they reason rightly and their reason points them towards its source, the God of truth. We need to point them to the credibility of Christian logic. Secondly, we need to point them to the credibility of the Christian lifestyle. When God's ambassadors, and you are an ambassador as we've talked about before, when God's ambassadors live 
in obedience to God's word, when we live the way we're supposed to, when God's ambassadors do what they're supposed to do, live how they're supposed to live, talk how they're supposed to talk, their holy and humble and compassionate lifestyle of service is a powerful testimony to the credibility of the Christian faith. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, right? Our lifestyle is supposed to be credible evidence that we know the Lord of life. A holy, humble, compassionate Christian who lives a life of service to others is a credible witness and he will have a huge impact on everyone around him. My younger brother who's now with the Lord uh, had the same literature professor that my older brother and I had. So my brother had this teacher and then I had him two years later then my little brother had him six years later. And this man was an atheist. A couple years after my younger brother had graduated from high school, this professor contacted us and said, I'd like to meet with all three of you. We didn't know what he wanted to talk about, but he took us out to lunch and he presented us. He's a, he's a, a very famous artist now. Um, makes incredible, um, incredible works of art. He had sketched a portrait of Christ and he presented it to my little brother um, said, you know, I want you to have this. He said, I've been teaching for 30 years. I've never, and he looked at my younger brother, I've never met anyone like you. He said, in fact, all three of you are different. And I know it's your faith, but I don't know why your faith makes you so different. I don't know, you know, he's one of these guys who wouldn't really share much of his response. I know he was deeply impacted. But I watch as my younger brother's life took a hardened atheist and softened his heart. It was just the credible testimony of a Christian life. Just the basics. Love, humility, compassion, service of others. A holy, humble, compassionate Christian will have a huge impact. But so will a carnal Christian. A carnal, proud, uncaring Christian who lives a hypocritical life will undermine the credibility of the Christian witness. So which one are you? Do you know what's sad? There are sometimes folks in the congregation, I find myself secretly hoping they never share Christ with someone. Why? Because I know their life is a counter testimony to what they would say with their lips. They unsay with their life whatever they might say with their lips. And so you find yourself saying, well, then just don't say it. Which are you? Does observing your life closely build the credibility of the Christian witness or undermine it? Which are you? Well, there's a third category of credibility that the Lord points us to, and that is the credibility of Christian love. When God's people love each other, as Christ commanded, the world sees it and recognizes its source. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. Let me read that to you. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, right? This is a commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the credibility of Christian love. I've had the privilege of visiting Israel College of the Bible and seeing Arab and Israeli Christians studying together, worshiping together, eating together, rejoicing together. It's a powerful testimony. Their love for one another is a powerful testimony to the outside world where those two groups hate each other, fight each other. But inside this one little community, this community of Christians, there is no barriers, there is no enmity, there is brotherhood. 
when God's people love each other as Christ commanded, the world sees it and recognizes its source. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you love one another? Why are you here? We have some incredible musicians here. Are, are you here because they're incredible musicians or are you here because we are worshiping together the God of love and are you here to love one another? Do you have a consumer approach to church or a family approach to church? I want to pause at this point and kind of summarize what we've covered so far in that first strategy. The sovereign strategy of the Savior is to convince people by creation, by consciousness, and by cumulative credibility. We've looked at the external evidence of creation, its design, its delight, its doxology. We've looked at the internal evidence of consciousness, our sense of eternity, our experience of emptiness, and our inclination to exaltation. We've looked at the cumulative evidence of credibility, the credibility of Christian logic, the credibility of the Christian lifestyle, and the credibility of Christian love. The Lord uses those things to draw people to himself, to persuade or to convince them. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. The Lord seeks to convince people by the compelling external evidence of creation, by the continual internal evidence of the person's own consciousness, and by the credibility of the cumulative evidence. That is the first sovereign strategy. And that brings us now to the second sovereign strategy of the Savior, which is to convict people of sin to convict people by the commandments, by the conscience, and by catastrophes. In John 7, 7, Jesus says, the world hates me, why? Because I testify against it that its deeds are evil. This is what Jesus said about himself. He said, the world hates me because I testify. And does he testify about how wonderful everyone is and you know, you're a good person, you're a good person, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, look how special you are, you are, you are. No, he says, I testify against it that its deeds are evil. He convicts the world of sin. They did not crucify Jesus because he spent his life telling people how wonderful they were. They crucified him because he was convicting them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And that, by the way, is still his strategy. After he ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. What does John 16, 7 through 8 say the Holy Spirit's mission is on earth? It is to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit is here to do. He's indwelling you. That means that's what you're here to do as well. We are to bring conviction of sin into the lives of people. Well, why is this such a core part of God's strategy? Well, it's really simple logic. Who wants a savior if they don't think they need saving? Right? No one will forsake sin to follow the savior until they realize that they need saving. You're not gonna leave the broad road to destruction until you realize it ends in destruction. You know, we go around offering the water of life to people who aren't thirsty. Sometimes when you offer the water of life and the person's just, eh, he's kind of nonchalant about it. It's because he's not thirsty. He doesn't realize he's a sinner, so he, he's not receiving the good news of the Savior. He thinks he's fine. He needs conviction of sin. You know, you wouldn't agree to a heart transplant unless you were convinced you were dying, right? Well, conversion is a heart transplant, right? Die to self, live to Christ. The unbeliever won't cry out to God to save him from hell until he realizes he's going there. That's why we can't preach half the message. We can't preach only half of the scriptures. Can't only preach half of what Jesus taught. Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify against it that its deeds are evil. If the church does not testify against the world that its deeds are evil, we are not like whom? We are not like Jesus. People need to realize that they are sinners who need saving before they will receive the Savior. Now, there's three ways that God works to bring conviction of sin. First is by the tutoring of the commandments, then by the torments of the conscience, and by the terrors of catastrophes, right? So, you know, here's my new, like, you know, positive, uplifting message outline. The tutoring, the torments, and the terrors. You know, but it actually is something important, right? Because being saved from hell is a very positive thing. You know, sometimes the first step to curing cancer is knowing you have it, right? So God, first of all, he 
tutors people through the commandments. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, it says that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith, right? The commandments, the law of God is a tutor that step-by-step leads us to Christ so that we can be justified by faith. People need to realize they're spiritual lawbreakers before they'll long for forgiveness. So we need to remind them of what God's law says. Thou shalt not steal. Have you stolen? Thou shalt not lie. Have you lied? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Do you use the name of Jesus as a curse? We need to use the Ten Commandments in evangelism because God's law is the tutor that teaches a sinner that he needs the Savior. Paul talks about the importance of God's commandments in bringing conviction of sin in Romans chapter 7. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. And then he says in verse 13, through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful, right? So the commandments of God show a sinner who they really are and how serious their sin really is. God's commandments reveal to us the sinfulness of sin, how evil it really is and how prevalent it is in our very natures and in our lives. So God first convicts a sinner of his need for a savior through the commandments. Secondly, he convicts them not only through the tutoring of the commandments, but through the torments of the conscience. Think of what Romans chapter 1 verse 29 says. It says that people are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And it says, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They know. They know that this is wrong and it brings judgment. Chapter two, verse 14 says, when Gentiles who don't even have the law, right? He, you know, he's writing to people that had the written law of God and what about those who don't have the written law of God? When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, right? This is woven into the very instincts of man by the creator. When those who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. He's saying, look, even those who don't have the written commandments, they have the law of God written on their hearts and their conscience accuses them when they do wrong and affirms them when they do right. People know that the wages of sin is death. God has written his law on our hearts. He's given us a conscience to warn us when we've broken God's law. The conscience is a spiritual warning system. It's the check engine light. It's a spiritual warning system which sounds a piercing alarm in our souls when we do evil. Just like physical pain alerts us that something's wrong with our body, spiritual pain, which the conscience brings, alerts us that something is wrong with our soul. That's why people go to such great lengths to numb the conscience. They go do sinful things, then they drink to forget, to numb, take drugs, That's why when you look at secular counseling, its number one objective is to alleviate guilt. Sometimes using drugs, sometimes using other methods, but the alleviation of guilt is a top priority for secular counselors because it is unpleasant. The conscience torments the sinner. But everything except for the gospel is just putting a numbing salve on a wound filled with gangrene. This is destroying the person. You can put a numbing salve on that wound all you want. The death spiral remains. Only the gospel gives a sinner new life and a new heart. 
So the guilt which people feel when they have sinned is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It's a spiritual warning system intended to bring a fear of judgment so that a sinner will cry out to God for salvation. God uses the terrors and the torments of the conscience to push someone towards Christ. Third, he uses the terrors of catastrophes, so not only the tutoring of the commandments and the torments of the conscience, but the terrors of catastrophes. Jesus says something interesting in Luke chapter 13. He's teaching and someone comes up to him and asks him about a current event. It says, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Here's an occupied people. The Romans have conquered them. They're now occupied by the Roman army. And Pilate had slaughtered people while they were in the temple worshiping God, mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. How does Jesus respond? He says this. It's something interesting. He says, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Right? Is this karma of some kind? No, no. This is what he says. I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's two types of catastrophes here. Catastrophes caused by human tyranny, right? By you know, human evil, right? Pilate killing these people. And then there's just once caused by human error, right? The tower falling on people. Whether it's human violence or human error, these are both catastrophes and people died. And Jesus says that both of those catastrophes should teach us the same lesson. What's that lesson? That we are mortal. That the wages of sin is death. That all have sinned, all have broken God's law, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and so all are under the curse of death. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face judgment. That is the lesson of catastrophes. Your day will come. Whether it's a tower, or a tyrannical governor, or a car accident, or a sickness, your death day is coming. So unless you repent, you will perish. That's the lesson Christ taught that we are supposed to learn from catastrophes. All catastrophes are supposed to teach us that lesson. Wars, buildings collapsing, natural disasters, personal tragedies, they should all be powerful reminders that life is a vapor and that we all need a Savior. We need Jesus who alone can give us eternal life. So the second major strategy the Lord uses to draw people to himself is that he convicts people of sin. He convicts them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And he does that through the teaching of the commandments, through the warnings of conscience, and through the shocking reality of deadly catastrophes. Every time there's a natural disaster, we should pray that those who have had their confidence in this mortal life shaken will begin to look for the only solution to death itself. That brings us, by the way, to the third sovereign strategy of the Savior, which is his sovereign call. He calls people to the cross, to the church, and to the great commission. John chapter 10, which I've referred to many times in this little mini-series, has these incredible words. John 10, 25. Sorry, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So simple and so profound. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. John 10, 27 teaches us that the call of Christ is a sovereign call and therefore it is an effectual call. When he calls his sheep follow. When he says Lazarus come forth, Lazarus came forth. He calls and we follow. Scripture teaches that Christ sovereignly calls his sheep to three things, to the cross, to the church, and to the Great Commission. First of all, he calls us to the cross, right? What did he teach in Mark 8, 34? He says, 
If anyone wants to follow me, he must do what? He must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. He calls us to the cross to die to self and to live for him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Nazis for his opposition to Hitler, in his book called The Cost of Discipleship, said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not a super popular message. Come, die to self and live for Christ. Come to the cross. Leave your old life there and begin a new walk with Christ. Paul explained this idea this way in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. It's time to get out of the driver's seat, sit in the passenger seat, get Christ in the driver's seat. No longer live for yourself, but to live for him who died for you. He calls us to the cross. He also calls us not only to the cross, but to the church. He calls us to the church. I want you to think about the apostolic pattern in Acts chapter 20, or uh, sorry, Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 42. Peter is preaching. It says, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, so then those who had received his word, right, those who were saved, well, what did they do? They were baptized. And then what did they do? And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. They were saved, they were baptized, and they were added to the church. That is the apostolic pattern. To be saved, then to be baptized, and then to be added to the church. Christ calls us to his body, the church. Scripture knows nothing of a churchless Christian. It's a modern invention, and it is a false one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says, Even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit, for the body is not one member but many. He calls us to his body, the church. The pattern is to be saved, baptized, and added to the church. And by the way, Scripture says specifically that if someone does not love his brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a big question about whether he even knows Christ and belongs to him. So listen, going to church does not save you. That's not what saves you. Only the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ saves you, his finished work on the cross. You are saved by grace through faith. Going to church does not save you, but... Going to church is one of the clearest indications of whether you're truly saved or not because a member of the body wants to be with the body. A brother loves his brothers. A sister loves her sisters. A true member of Christ's body will be attached by love to the other members of his body, which is the church. If Christ has called you to the cross for salvation, then he has also called you to the church for sanctification. You need to have the same importance in your heart in regard to the church as Christ does. Scripture describes the church as what Christ purchased with his own blood. That which is that precious to him must also be precious to those of us who belong to him. And a member of the body cannot be detached from the body. And so we prioritize the church. Third, he calls us not only to the cross, to the church, but also then to the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the good news. Make disciples. We are called to the commission. Some people call themselves Christians. They even attend church, but they have no apparent desire to share the good news of the cross of Christ with anyone. To such people, I think evangelist Ray Comfort rightly says, if you are not concerned about your neighbor's salvation, then I am really concerned for yours. How can someone who's been rescued from sin and death, who loves the Lord, not have a desire for others to meet him? 
You're called to the commission. If you really believe the gospel is good news, you will share it with everyone you can, and especially those you love. Scripture teaches us that Christ calls his sheep to three things, and he never calls them to one without calling them to the other. He calls us to the cross, he calls us to the church, and he calls us to the commission. If you are born again, you have been called to all three. The only question is, how obedient are you to your call? How are you obeying the Lord's call to the commission? Well, I want to close by bringing it now to application. I want to ask each of you individually to consider where you stand in regard to these three sovereign strategies of the Savior. Are you convinced that Jesus is Lord and Savior? Are you convicted of sin and willing to repent? And have you called upon the name of the Lord? I'm going to pray for you and then I want to pray with you. If you have never called upon the name of the Lord for salvation, I pray today and these moments will be the time in which you pass from death to life, in which you call upon the name of the Lord. And the scripture promises everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful that you have done so much to convince us done so much to convict us of sin and Lord you give out that gospel call come to me all who are weary and heavy laden I will give you rest for your souls call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved Lord may each soul each eternal soul who will live forever in either either heaven or hell May each soul choose life that they may live. May they repent of sin and trust the Savior. May they turn from following their own way to following you. May they, by grace through faith, receive the gift of eternal life. My prayer, Lord, is that they would pray. They would come to you and say, My God, my creator, you are sovereign. You are God. And I have broken your law. I have sinned in more ways than I can remember in thought and word and deed. I've sinned more often than I can remember. And my sin is terrible. It's an offense to your holiness. And so I repent. And by faith, I cry out to you to save me. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for my sin, for my transgressions. I believe that he rose from the dead and broke the power of sin and death. And so, oh Lord, I'm responding to your call. I hear your voice and I follow you. Take my life. May it be no longer mine, but yours. I confess you as Savior. I confess you as Lord. Save me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.